Hello, and welcome to this new episode of the Windhorse Publications podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dama Mega, and I'm the Publishing Director at Windhorse Publications. Today, I'm speaking with Naga Bodhi about the book we'll be releasing in February this year. You may have heard of Naga Bodhi, if for no other reason, as the author of the book Jai Bim, Dispatches from a Peaceful Revolution which was about the new Buddhist movements in India in the wake of the extraordinary leadership and conversion of Dr. Bimrao Ambedkar. And today we have an in-depth conversation, Nagabodi and myself, about his new book, which is a biography of his teacher and friend, Sangharakshita, who is the founder of the Triratna Buddhist movement and order, and a rather extraordinary and complex man, and a pioneer of the movement of Buddhism to the West. So I hope you find Nagabodhi, his stories, and his reflections on Sangharakshita and writing about Sangharakshita interesting. Hello, Nagabodhi. Hi, Dhamma <laughs> Really nice to see you today. Hmm. So um, you have quite recently written a book about Sangharakshita. Uh, what's the title of the book? The title is Sangharakshita, The Boy, The Monk, The Man. Great. So um, some of you will definitely know, some of you who are listening will definitely know who Sangharakshita is, and some of you might not, um, if you're fairly new to the podcast that we're doing. So Sangharakshita was, amongst other things, um, the founder of the Tri Ratna Buddhist movement. So um, maybe Nagabodhi, you could just, before you talk about writing the book about Sangharakshita, just talk a little bit about when you met him. In your own uh, first meeting with him, uh, my first meeting was was uh, oral. In that, um, a friend at work, I was in in a BBC cutting room, uh, and the person I was working with most closely in that cutting room, I was the trainee assistant editor. The assistant editor was um, already involved with Sangharakshita, mm. and I was already calling myself a Buddhist. Mm. And this friend uh, lent me a tape, one, one of Sangharakshita's, a tape of one of his talks, the uh, his talk on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm, strong uh, stuff. He, yes, but uh, you know, I was, I was very, very, uh, very, very pleased to listen to it. I have to confess too that um, I also used it for for a while to help me sleep because there was something about his voice that was so kind of relaxing and calming that having listened to the talk several a couple of times um I, it then i think there was one one night i was in bed listening to it on a real to real tape recorder in those days and i fell asleep and <laughs> sort of a light bulb i had a light bulb moment and thought i say i found a, a very good way of falling asleep so so for a while my my first real encounter with with sangharakshita was hearing him talk but then also yeah, having him invade my my dreams. When I actually met him was, uh, thanks to the same person, the colleague at work, one November night, a rainy November night in 1970. Um, he, and I, he kind of dragged me along. I, I wasn't wanting to meet a teacher or join a Buddhist group, but he was um, a cutting room. A BBC cutting room is a very small space. A little bit bigger than a phone booth, um, you know. He, he, you know, I, I let him persuade me to come along to a, to a talk, and it was a talk called the uh, the Jewel in the Lotus, mm. which is one of you know really is a very very engaging magical 
interesting, uh, stimulating talk. So it was very lucky that that was the first talk I heard. Um, I mean, I have written about this, not in not in this book, not in not in um, the one I've just finished, but in J. Bim, the uh, the talk, the, the book I wrote about forty years ago. I was in the front row of a very small audience, maybe 30 people, maybe 40 people in the room. And Sangharachita was um, got up to speak, not terribly prepossessing, you know, this man in his mid-40s wearing robes, but also very obviously a thick mustard sweater underneath it, um, you know, and sort of civilian clothes underneath the robes with his hair down to his shoulders, his fingers covered with rings. Um, you know, it wasn't like my first meeting and handshake had particularly got me excited. But when he got up to speak, and he just talks at the beginning of that lecture about, um, he just spins a kind of an image of a of a, of a caravan, um, you know, caravan of Tibetans with, with some llamas and their outriders making their way across the Tibetan plateau. And... Uh, you know, he's going to weave the way to to how you come across walls with the mantra engraved on it and pass stupas with the with the mantra painted on it. Um, but as he as he just stood there talking about this, you know, just weaving his way into the story before he'd really got started, I I came close to fainting. I was on in the front row on the extreme distance from the door. So to get up and leave the room would have been, I was too self-conscious to do that. So I sat there and for a long time, I pondered what was going on. And it wasn't anything magical. You know, I met my guru. I don't think it was, but there was something about the sort of simple authenticity and ease with which he spoke. Mm. Um, again, about nothing magical, you know, Tibetans on ponies going across the desert wastes. Um, but there was something about him that was so authentic that uh, it was as if whatever in me was shallow and unformed recoiled in shock. That's the only way I, I can explain it. And and yet he, in, in other ways, was so ordinary and not particularly attractive or, as I say, prepossessing. But that was my first encounter with him. You know, mm. So... so I mean, it was months before I went back to anything else. I mean, it didn't mean, oh, that's it, I found him. It was, again, the same guy. I was by then uh, working in the play school cutting room. Uh, <laughs> my friend Steve would pursue me on the internal phone system, wherever I was working, wherever he was working, say, man, when you're coming back, you've got to meet. And eventually I let him persuade me to go to a, 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 a an FWBO festival day. Very, very small occasion. but. There was something about it that that got me intrigued, and by the people as well as him, the young, attractive people. It wasn't all spiritual. I mean, there was some attractive women there. <laughs> I'm honest. Mixed motives. <laughs> didn't, didn't hurt. Um, and I decided in I decided sort of pretty much then and there to sign up for 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 something they had a poster for on the wall. Um, this wasn't their wall. It was a, a hired wall that used by the Boy Scouts most of the time. Mm -hmm. But on the wall, someone had pinned a poster for a summer retreat. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go along for that 16 days in the Surrey countryside. And uh, that was it. You know, from, from then on, I was, you know, I was just 
connected and uh, with with the whole thing it was the practice it was the people it was sangrachita it was yeah. so that was uh, 1970 of course it's 70 uh, and retreat in 71 yeah yeah so uh you know that's more than 50 years ago you've you've been <laughs> so you've been um well around sangrachita as a person but also around the developing uh, movement that he founded in that time, during that time, and uh, well, sixty-eight onwards. Um, so you know, it's an interesting. You're an interesting witness, mm. not only to Sangharakshita as a person, but to like his life's work, I suppose. You know, literary and and otherwise. So you you used to be in the job that has the same title as the job I now have. Oh, right. I imagine it was quite a different job. You were you started Winter's Publications and were um the director of it for 25 years, maybe half of that. 20, I think 25 yeah. or 27, something like that. Yeah. 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 So um a bit unusually, we commissioned you to write this book. You know, yeah. often we're approached by authors with ideas or uh, things that they want to do, or we sort of put things out and see see what comes back. But this was a very intentional process. Yeah. Um, uh, and I wonder, I wonder why you said yes to to writing the yeah. book when we asked you to, because it's a big, it's a big and not an not an easy book to write. Sure. Um, yes, I not sure that I realized how difficult it was going to be um, when I said yes. Well, I I wrote a book you know, back in 1985, um, which got published in 1988, um, GIBM Dispatches from a Peaceful Re Revolution. That was um, an account of the sort of the adventure I went on with Sangharakshita traveling around uh, Western India. Uh, watching mainly watching Sangharakshita do his work among the the new Buddhist population there, you know some of us and uh, joining in sometimes myself giving talks and so on. It was just this wonderful experience which I knew had to be written up by someone. So I, I wrote that book and we published it back in back in 1989. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I'd hardly written anything since then. I think I was still editing the magazines, uh, the movements, magazines, Mitratar and the the newsletter, which became Golden Drum before it was Dharma Life. So I would write editorials and, and, and articles occasionally, short articles, 1,500 words. I hadn't written anything. And then when I stopped doing that, just the shape of my life, um, the other things I was doing militated against any any serious writing work. I guess in between, a lot of friends who liked the first book would really express surprise that I wasn't doing more writing. I kind of, I remembered the, the excitement of writing that first book, but it didn't seem to fit into my life. But funnily enough, on New Year's Day of the year before last, I mean, I guess we were in the pandemic, I was out for a walk with Vimla Chitta, my wife, and she was having a go and about my writing. And so I made a resolution that I would at least do something. Even if it was just take more care over the emails I wrote, I would turn them into something more of a literary hobby, if nothing else. And then you guys approached me in April. I was 
really intrigued. I mean, <laughs> the, the letter, Divan's email, suggested it would be of about 20,000 words. And I think in the first phone call, you know, the idea was it would be something that could be um, at centres in uh, Ergen House, so that people who visited Ergen House at uh, Adistana, that Sangrachita's um, last home, there'd, there'd be these for them to pick up and take away, you know, an account of Sangrachita's life. But the rider was that it it should give, you know, I can't, I can't quote it verbatim, but it was asking for a kind of rounded picture of Sangrachita's life as we kind mm-hmm. of, um, approach it now, which involves you know something of the complexity by which you know I kind of also read the controversy uh, around him. So, I anyway, we I think in our first real meeting we decided it would need to be a bigger book, but I think maybe even then I was thinking of forty thousand, maybe fifty thousand words. Mm. Um, I believe we are at ninety eight thousand as it stands. <laughs> That's with all the footnotes <laughs> you insisted we included, and the, all the all the uh, all the publishing guff and the acknowledgements. And I think I wrote. I I thought I'd written about ninety three, ninety four thousand words. So, but I looked. I looked at my last draft on on my computer, and it told me it was only about ninety thousand words. So there must be seven thousand words of content you've added. Either that, or I can't add. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it, it's turned into a real book. Mm. Um, it really has turned into a real book. I'm just aware that some that people who are listening to this might have, might have very very different amounts of information about Sangharakshita. So maybe it's worth saying um, that Sangharakshita, uh, born in London in Tooting, grew up in the UK in the Second World War, went to India, travelled a lot around India. Took robes as a as a Buddhist monastic, ended up spending many years in Kalimpong, uh, deeply influenced not only by Theravadan style Buddhist practice but also Mahayana, and then um, encountering many of the Tibetan teachers coming out just after the the um, Chinese invasion of Tibet, moved back to the UK and founded what has now become the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order and Movement. So spent a goodly part of the second half of his life um, teaching and sort of setting up this community, which uh, is is a community that we're both part of. And he died three years ago. It is three years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. three years ago in October. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's an interesting time, isn't it, to be looking back on his life when he's not any longer able to speak for himself. Um, And there's a number of, a number of people writing and thinking and speaking at the moment, sort of wanting to reflect on his life. Uh, And, and one of the reasons we wanted to commission this was that people are coming into uh, Buddhist centers and learning to meditate and getting to know the community that we're part of who otherwise might would have gotten to know him. Uh, It's no longer possible. So so this is a sort of way of letting people know about Sangharakshita, but also as we'll get into it, um, there, there are some quite controversial aspects of his life, whether that's uh, in his sexual relationships and also some of the approaches he took to uh, gender in relation to traditional ordination and gender in relation to the kind of norms of uh, our society around gender and uh, um, and a number of other things. So when you say we we were asking for a well-rounded 
mm-hmm. um, book, we we wanted you to be able to kind of address all of that, really, just to yeah. just to give people a little bit more background if yeah. they don't know. It. Uh, and I think to to <laughs> the way you, the way you laid it out, which was yeah, was a you know a reasonably useful precy of, of the story. Um, it, you know, it, it already shows that there are, there are quite a few dimensions to his life. I guess, a, you know, there, there were a couple of points in in your in your, your account there, which, um, to me, unpicking them again shows why it was a difficult or a, a, a not such a straightforward work, work, uh, project. You, you you spoke about him taking the robe as a monastic, as a Buddhist monastic. Well, no, immediately we're in tricky territory because (laughs) that's not how he sees it. um, And it's not how it was because he never joined a monastery and the... Mm. Both te- both of the, the the monks who ordained him into a Theravada Nikaya, a Theravada ordination tradition, neither of them were able to take him on as a disciple. Yeah. His attempt to get to Sri Lanka to be ordained there and to join a monastery fell foul of the fact that he had burnt his passport in a, a moment of spiritual commitment to higher causes than material ends. Mm-hmm. Um so you know there there are there are stories that maybe could have been quite different about his life, but actually underlying it as he's he always made quite clear, though I think it was an evolving clarity in his even in his own mind, was that he never thought of himself as being ordained um uh as being ordained into a monastic tradition mm. he saw himself being ordained as a buddhist he had a pro, he had in his in his young days a, a really strong desire to live um, a renunciate life mm. and he knew absolutely that he was a buddhist but already from the earliest stages in his buddhist life knew that one had to embrace the entire tradition and he felt committed to, to the Buddha and to the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, but in in its totality. So, mm-hmm. in a way, as some people might see him, I think conventional Buddhists and many, and there are you know, obviously many out there, um, Buddhists who've taken the traditional roots of living and working, practicing within one tradition under one teacher or at least one one version of a teaching, they they don't quite know what to make of him. You know, if any, you know, he some would even see him as a failure because he never actually honoured his ordination. In mm. in his mind, in his inner world, as I've tried to tease out in my book, it was never quite like that. He was absolutely a Buddhist, but working out what that really means for him and by extension therefore what it really means to a somebody living in the modern world the the global village a world mm. where um traditional ways of practicing where perhaps in your whole lifetime you'd only meet the the one monk who occasionally visited your village um mm. how were you a buddhist in this world well first how are you a buddhist anyway in relation not just to the teachings of one tradition, but in relation to who and what the Buddha was, then how do you how how are you a Buddhist in this modern world? Um I think the other the other point that you you sort of 
necessarily you know, skated over was that he came back to England and started a new movement. Well, he came back to England at the invitation of the Buddhist society in Tikata, you know, a bit of a story short. They hoped that he as the senior most monk of British origin, he could sort out some of the um, tensions and uh, controversies within the English, the British, the tiny, tiny British Buddhist world of 1967 or 66 when he first came back. Um, he came back in all good faith, just thinking he would do what he could to help out and then go back to India. And it was only his realization of what was going on in the Buddhist world in, in Britain, but also the discovery that this was an opportunity. Here was an opportunity mm. to, well, to, to bring the Dharma into a world where it was virtually unknown and where it was known, particularly in Britain. It was often misunderstood, misrepresented already lost in meaningless out-of-date orthodox issues of orthodoxy and so on mm. and so in a way he it was the ideal situation for him to carry on you know the experiment of discovering what it means to be a buddhist but in the course of doing that what does it mean to bring the, the buddhism and not just buddhism but but uh, you know the buddha the dharma and the sangha in, into this modern world you know so it was a, a kind of two-way process you know that what was going on in him affected the kind of movement he founded and the, the opportunities available to him in the west as a very sincere buddhist practitioner allowed him to do it in a new way and so already you know we, we know we will you know we're happy to move on to the sort of the, the sex stuff but um it was you know it, it that's the real core of the thing. And in a way, the, the, the sex stuff is merely an extension, you know, of, of that of what does it mean to be a Buddhist? You know, what did it mean for him? What does it mean for anyone? And in particular, how does one go about doing it in, in this world? And he didn't just have the idea of starting, you know, his own little group. You know, there are plenty of famous teachers, famous because they've written books, who've never tried to start a movement. But from the earliest time, you know, he he saw the West, and in a sense, beyond that, he saw the modern world needing the Dharma. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. You know, it, I think it, it is one of the most um, kind of interesting and, in a way, complex uh, dimensions of the book, right. which actually don't come across as particularly difficult to read or engage with because you tell it um, so well and with so many stories and anecdotes and perspectives. Mm -hmm. But this thing about thinking the Dharma universally and mm -hmm. thinking the Sangha with the people that were going to be forming that Sangha and trying to make something uh, that uh, would, would, would work and actually has, you know, in a way has been a, the successful establishment of a Sangha in the sense of really, really deep, interpersonal connections and relationships that continue over years and decades and form the context for people's spiritual practice. Yes. A very yes. interesting combination looking at how he thinks about Sangharakshita is trying to think about the Dharma across Buddhist traditions more broadly and think about in a way he was he was so looking for connection and Sangha in yes. the early parts of his own search. Like he was a sincere practitioner who couldn't really find a context 
mm. where he could be that in full. Yes, yes. Or, or well, in his way, he he lived it very fully. I mean, he found inspiration where where he could find it, and and in the earliest days in India, he found it among some of the Hindu saints mm. and swamis. And then, when as he encountered Buddhism, not particularly in the Theravada world, but especially in Kalimpong, he took tremendous inspiration from his friendships and initiations with 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 Tibetan. So he. You know, he managed to live a very sort of full-on Buddhist life, you know, internally and externally, as a teacher, commentator, as a colleague, you could say, of Dr. Ambedkar, the the the, the great hero of the uh, the former untouchable masses mm-hmm. who converted to Buddhism and so on. So he was living that life, but in the West, it just presented new opportunities and uh, and new challenges. Uh, just referring back to 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 some the way you you put things um somebody who's read the book um you know sort of reasonably well known sort of british you know, commentator was kind of interested in i think i think the way they spelt it out was um couldn't quite understand how the book at, at times seemed to just get a little bit bogged down in things like you know how men and women interacted and and so on you know that that that, that whole dimension of 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 the work that we and sangrakshita were were doing through the 70s 80s 90s i think we're pretty sorted out now but um i kind of i i find i found i realized after a while that i i realized yes people don't kind of get it because we're so used to buddhist teachers who come over and well, they become they become well known as meditation teachers. You know, that's what they do, or, or they have a particular angle on Buddhist life, Buddhist practice, which they communicate through their books while maybe living in one, you know, particularly most of the time in 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 one monastery that they've set up. I don't think I can't really think of anyone else who has established from scratch and even thought, you know, deeply. Well, what would it mean to 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 just wipe the slate clean and create, you know, a, a, a context, mm-hmm. an environment, you know, fed by a stream of teachings that might work in the modern world? You know, mm-hmm. he well, there's a very fat anthology of material that Vidya Devi, one a member of our order, has put together of Sangrachita's teachings on meditation. I don't think any of us really first and foremost think of him as our meditation teacher. I mean, he was one, but uh, and we practice within within his system, so to speak. But um, you know, you can think of other people who are well known as for their for their meditation and for their meditation teachings. I, I think it's um, very hard for people to grasp the sort of the scale of Sangharakshita's ambition mm. and. Um, well, what's 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 the word daring? You know, there's a, you know the Yiddish word chutzpah, which you know, you know, I think I use somewhere. Is it, you know, what a nerve, what an extraordinary thing to have taken on. But that that's you know, he did nothing less than that. Or he tried to do nothing less than that. Rereading the book, it's the the book a bit like his life. Uh, you say, you know, if 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 somebody had to 
have done a palm reading of him, they would have seen a sort of something that looked a bit like a dividing line, you know, yeah. a life in, in India and then a, a life um, in the UK and from the UK, let's say. Yeah. Um, I think rereading the book, uh, some of which is drawn from his own memoirs and his accounts of his travels in India. And as you say, like trying to, uh, trying to figure out how to live his very strong commitment to the Dharma and his and find inspiration and 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 ways and places of practicing. Um, but I think the thing that really moved me in a way, reading that again, is um just how profoundly um, sort of singular his approach was to the people around him. Is is kind of profoundly. He says at some point that he. I'm I'm going to misquote this. You might have to give me the the the, the correct words, but um, you know that that he really really believes at the level of of a life and death commitment to the idea that any human being can be a friend with any other human being. Mm. That's sort of the spirit of it, and you really see um, this kind of uh, an individual moving amongst a huge range of people. Uh, finding connections and friendships and um, a sort of way of moving through that society, which, of course, him being a little bit of an outsider in relation to caste gave him freedom to move. Yeah. Um, uh, and we can maybe talk about his experience of being an outsider in terms of his sexuality as well. Yeah. But yeah. I think I was just quite moved and impressed and you've captured in a way kind of slightly um, singular very driven, uh, anachronistic uh, man who nonetheless moves through all of these social and sort of spiritual spaces with extraordinary ease. It's it's fascinating that, um, I mean, he, he had a happy childhood, though he was you know, confined to bed for, a, for, for months, two years. There, there seems to be a little bit of a, a question hanging in the air just recently as to, from his own mouth, whether it was eight months or two years. I've written two years because that's how he always spoke about it. But, you know, he, he said that uh, he had an inner life that was far more sort of demanding and engaging and absorbing than you'd find even among the most extreme introverts. It's hard to know whether I'd call him an introvert because in some ways he did live an intense inner life. And yet, yes, he seems to have been able to get on with people and meet people you know, in the army. And he was conscripted, of course, because during the war. So he was 18 when he went into the army and he seemed to have friends there. But then in the, all his time off, he was going off to visit these Hindus who lived down the road. And Every, you know, all his free time was spent among them, learning something of the language, learning to eat Indian food, getting to know the Indian world. And, and that was that was when he was 18, 19. And it continued for the rest of his life, whether they were Tibetans or um, Chinese people that he, he lived among Kalimpong. He always seems to have been able to just make connection, um, learn from people. He had a he was a real collector. You know, in, in later life, he collected and polished stones, you know, but he was he was collecting. I mean, his knowledge of um, such written Buddhism, you know, and accounts of Buddhism as there were at the when he was 17 and 18, 
I mean, he'd probably read just about anything going. And, you know, he collected information. He collected practice. He he collected friends. Um, he just had this sort of mag- magnetism, which just um, out of his own interest and fascination, you know, drew things to, to him. And he lived very vividly in the world. If he went off, you know, when we started to center in America, the East Coast or the West Coast or in New Zealand, and he would he would have by the time he arrived he would have read the history of the country, he would be familiar with the poets, its literature, its laws, and you know the Buddhist scene in that country. He would he lived in four dimensions. You know, he mindfulness for him wasn't just you know space. You know, it it was also time, and it was also the kind of cultural depth of a place. Um, to be around him. In a way, yes, he lived very vividly among us. That didn't mean that he was, you know, he he he, he was um he wasn't easy friendly. He could be, but you know, I lived with him in, in communities twice, and he enjoyed teasing, he enjoyed telling anecdotes, he enjoyed being able to talk about the books he was reading uh to a degree that was daunting. But there was also something about him that was so engaged in purpose that um, there was also a slight force field pushing you away. Mm-hmm. And this was one of his intimate friends, and I don't mean by that just sexual partners. I mean, there, there, there were friends who just quite easily and naturally he opened to, and again, they would come from any country and any social class. There were people who took to him and who he took to in a way that transcended the fact that he was the teacher or even a Buddhist. Um, mm. And he would, you know, just have very easy, relaxed friendships with them. People who he spent a lot of time working with in the movement, it wasn't necessarily the same. You know, we were close, you know, and I, I was one of them. Um, but and it, it was certainly a friendly relationship, but a lot of the time you, you were very clear it was a working relationship and a teaching relationship, mm. which again yeah. made his character fascinating to be around and a constant koan for some of us, to be honest. You do tell some fantastic anecdotes from, from the sort of friendly, easy to get together with to how in- excruciating and awkward some of the dinner parties could be as everybody just got intimidated and didn't know what to say. Were you ever at one of them? I wasn't, but I have met him in that sort of uh, mode, you know, um, very, very little, you know, very, very little, I don't know what to say. It's not even feedback, but, you know, very, very little uh, facilitating of social processes. No, he didn't. (laughs) I did see him try once. Uh, it was a very awkward occasion at Padmaloka community. He invited about eight women from the Norwich Sangha, eight members of the uh, of the, the, the Norwich Order, and to, to dinner, but asked two or three of us to kind of what to be to wait on them. And it was like no one knew what to say. And I think eventually a couple of them at the other end of the table just started talking to each other. And Sangraksha was sitting there and he just turned to the person on his left who was blushing scarlet with with awkwardness and just said, a penny for them? You know, that that English (laughs) phrase, a penny for your thoughts. 
And I, I don't think she even knew what to say. It was just such an poor Banty, poor her. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't terribly good at that sort of thing. But um, I, I, you know, in a way, it was fine in India. You know, arriving in India, people would come to visit him in the flat where we were staying. And it was enough, you know, to just say hello, you know, maybe, you know, bow bow before him or prostrate to him and and just sit there watching us talking. Mm. You know, some of them, you know, he spoke Hindi, you know, so he could speak to, you know, old friends who he met, but it was enough to, for them to take Darshan. And, uh, you know, Darshan obviously is not a British institution. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> not not. To, it's not that he was trying to enforce that. Mm. But, um, mm. yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 and it's not like he wouldn't have liked to know how to do it a bit better, but it just wasn't his thing. It just wasn't. Maybe this is also a good way into um, the discussions about, you know, what, what we've been referencing in sort of shorthand as controversies or the controversial yeah. aspects of his teaching or his personality. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in, in a variety of ways, perhaps it would be, uh, well, let me say something and then you can say, how I should have said it, but like <laughs> you could say that some sometimes the relationships between him and the people who came into the movement um, in a variety of ways were sometimes difficult or, or fraught, or that they were questions about views about what should or shouldn't happen in that space. And one of the issues, obviously, is that um, when in the early days of the movement, he started having sex with some of the men who were part of that community. So that's an issue which, I mean, wouldn't happen now, but certainly happened then. Um, and there was some uh, concern, upset, certainly, about some of the ways some of those relationships ended. And there are certainly some people, a few people now, a few of those men who slept with him who now say they they felt a, a they felt some kind of pressure internal or external to do it. Like they weren't fully um, consenting, even if he, it seems, thought that they were consenting. So there was, you know, some miscommunication in that. And we, we're living a little bit, um, uh, uh, <laughs> what was uh, actually Sabuti in what his endorsement for you said, that you'd done a really good job of, of writing about a man who was a brilliant light and left an uncomfortable shadow. Mm. Um, you know, this, th there are these dimensions that are a bit of a legacy and a difficult thing to, to, um, to work out how to be in relationship with. Um, and obviously one of the possible problems is that you can just end up having endless conversations about the Sangharakshita and his sex life. And yeah. that just takes up so much space. And on the other, um, talk about it in relation to Dharma and Sangha. And then what do you do with this dimension? So I wonder about how you approached this. Yeah. I mean, you you were you were living around him in the time, and now you're writing about it in a very different time. Mm. Well, living around him at the time was totally uncomplicated. You knew he was doing it. Um, didn't seem to make a jot of difference to how he taught, how he comported himself among the rest of us. Um, he, he had a you know, very long-term rela you know, relationship with, with Mark um, Dunlop, who was ordained as Frederick Kamara, and then you know, two or three other people, sort of lengthy relationships, and then a, a, another 
the last one again, which was uh, you know um, some years. I mean, to be honest, at the time it was it was hard to see a problem. I mean, now one looks at the just as an issue, teacher student. You know, you wouldn't do it now. We don't do it now. We have sort of safeguarding and all the rest. But at the time, and um, <laughs> we never, we were never in conversations like, "What does he think he's doing?" You know, it was just not. He he was doing that. I mean, it was the the fag end of the sixties uh, into the seventies. You know, so perhaps you know you could say that. I think. Well, if that had had an influence on us, it was that we probably weren't homophobic. I don't think it was like we were all going wild too or anything like that. He he was just living his life. It was obvious, you know, it was obvious to, to us that he was who he was. That was that was part of it. And and to be honest, I mean, you know, it was very painful when years later, you know, people did surface with stories, some of which were. Well, actually, there are not that many that were, you know, that that were were broadcast or that um, that I've heard, you know, privately. There, there were clearly a few where there were real, there was a real understanding. There was, there was was perhaps a sense of pressure, and there was pain, and there was hurt. Um, some of the longer ones, which have caused you know the most trouble, have been a bit harder to understand from those of us who lived around. You know the, the two of them during the relationship because it was so not obvious at the time. You know, one could wish it had been, but um, you know, it wasn't. I mean, I, I, um, I mean, you know, where to begin? I mean, I do talk about it in two or three places, three or four places through the book, fairly briefly. But by by the time you get to the end of the book, I hope you have a, a, a fairly clear and honest picture of, of the story. And, and what was behind it? Something, something worth pointing out, uh, because I think it's important, is that his reputation in the Buddhist world, and he's something of a pariah in some quarters, and I think always will be. You know, from that point of view, you know, the book will be. You know, there will be people who'll find it very hard to give the book a sympathetic reading, even. That side of Sangaractus's reputation was already formed by the time I got involved in 1970. I was, I was assistant editor on a, a television series called The Long Search, which was on, and um, I remember the director saying that he was going to meet this Buddhist monk the next day, and made a really rather lewd, I won't repeat it, comment about what he'd heard about him. You know, this was in 1970-71. Now, all those rumours about Sangharakchita, which established his reputation, in, were based on his friendship with Terry de la Mer. You know, it's a friendship that I devote a chapter to. And the, there is absolutely no question that that was not a sexual relationship. Um, Terry was a good-looking man. The age difference wasn't so great in those days, but it was about many, many other things, but it wasn't about sex. I suspect that with Terry, Sangharakshita felt free to talk about the fact that he was gay, because Terry had his own sexual issues, you know, that he wrestled with as a heterosexual. So I think in his in his friendship with Terry, which became extremely close, extremely intimate. Sangharakshita, fresh from India, living in what he felt was an extremely 
cold and inauthentic atmosphere of of a, of the the Buddhist vihara in Hampstead, being expected to be the monk, with all sorts of all sorts of um, issues going on around the Buddhist world, which which themselves just as Buddhist issues affected him because he was so not what people expected, but that he also had this very close friendship with this young man that you know was clearly a powerful attraction um just on a human basis i think people looking at them assumed it was a sexual relationship and that's how it that's how it began and i once asked sangrachita well given the reputation you had <laughs> might it not have been a good idea you know <laughs> not to kind of play into it and his answer were two answers he gave me um one was, well, of course, I could have remained celibate, but then we would have a totally different order and movement, you know, because, of course, he would have been doing the monk thing, you know, and and in a monkish way and all the rest. You know, he couldn't have really done the full the full nine yards of the, the, the project that he was engaged in, in himself and as a Buddhist. Um, the other the other answer was was sort of well well if that's what people think of me you know why why do I need to restrain myself any longer you know he he'd known that he was attracted to men from the age of fourteen um, in India as a monk you know in in living you know to the extent he was living as a monk you know wearing the robe in India um, he did I mean he 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 wrestled with the the tension sometimes and his poetry shows that. But he told me point blank to my face that he observed the, the traditional vanaya to the letter, you know, which would of course mean you know, celibacy, chastity. But when he was back in, in the West, it seemed quite natural to him. In partly, you know, because already through his friendship with Terry, he'd got used to being a um just a person. Terry, Terry Delamere called him Dennis. Um, it was with Terry that he started to just you know, wear ordinary clothes when they when when they went off into London together. Um, he just started to feel his way into being a person not defined by uh, the out, the outer sort of uh, the outer living of 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 a sort of monk's life. He'd already in his mind been gradually um, challenging that for years, anyway. Know, what mm -hmm. the meaning of the monastic life is, what the meaning of orthodoxy is, and so on. These are issues that had gone back years. Um, so once he felt free, yes, you know, and yes, in a sense, uh, you could ask, someone might say, yes, but why did he why did he restrict his actions to the movement, to these younger people who got involved? In a way, the simple answer is <laughs> because that's where he was living. He did... It's back to his sense of purpose. He wasn't going off to clubs or doing, he had no life other than his life as a Buddhist. And if you strip away feelings of uh, unnecessary feelings of guilt and homophobia, and if, as he thought, the people he got into sexual, um, whether it was a relationship or, or, or an encounter with, you know, if he thought that they were into it as well, you know, which he did, um, in a way, you know, it, it was for him. It seemed quite a straightforward matter. He was aware of the complexities, 
in terms of how that might look outside. But the people he was living and working with, we we weren't bothered. So in a sense, he didn't have to address it. Mm-hmm. Later in life, you know, when when the stories started to come out, you know, that's when perhaps some of us were disappointed that he didn't say more. Um, and it's one of those areas where in writing the book, you know, I could, you know, many times where I would have loved him to be alive. So I could go and ask him all sorts of questions that I never asked him when he was alive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are questions perhaps in that area, but I, you know, on the record in several interviews, talked to him about that side of his life more than anyone else. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, when, when, when some of the pain that his mistakes, his misjudgments had caused surfaced, um, it was it was tough that it took a very long time, some years, mm-hmm. before he wrote. You know the apology that he did, and you know, t- you know whether he'd call it a confession. But you know, he, but by then he was you know he was getting getting on, and some people thought, well, we shouldn't pressure him at his age. You know, we've got what we've got from him. You know, let's mm. just leave him alone. I mean, I, I didn't think that at the time. I was quite militant and had, I can remember, one very bitter argument with a close friend, he taking the side of, look, come on, leave him alone. And I was being very stroppy. No, why can't he speak? But for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I think when I say that, I think he would have had a reason. I don't think he was just afraid. Mm. I don't know... You know, well, I think in a way you have to read the book and see what I've made of it. You know, everyone's free to make up their mind. Mm. And in the end, you know, you also have to make up your mind as to how seriously in your sense of the man, you know, particularly if you're you know, involved in Tree Ratney, you have to make your own mind up as to how much that matters, whatever your understanding is of what he mm. did didn't do who he didn't, didn't hurt. You, we're just left needing to make up our own mind. Well, um, you know, for some people, he did no wrong. For, for some people, he did quite a lot of wrong, but look what he gave us. Mm. You know, that, that's where we're left. And the world is changing at the speed of light in terms of people's attitudes to gender, sex, and all the rest. I mean, I really don't know if anyone will be interested even remotely in 10 years' time, or maybe the clock, the whole culture will have swung back to some kind of Puritanism and, uh, you know, we'll be dashed on the rocks. You know, but I've, I've done what I can, you know, as the book progresses, mm. to not shy away from that subject. If it seemed relevant, then mm. I've addressed it, you know, in, in relation to that period of his life. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, in all honesty, I've left the reader to make their own mind up as to how they're going to live with that. Hmm. I mean, I think um, you know the book. The book as a whole is, as we asked you to do, and as you've been speaking about, and and certainly a lot more than we've touched on in this conversation. A very, very rounded view of kind of his friendship, the development of his ideas, the development of his inspiration and practices, his teachers, his adventures, his experiments, as you say, with a kind of 
Big E, his experiment with his mind, with the idea of the Sangha, with the notion of the West, with poetry, with mm. literature. I mean, the, the thing we haven't really touched on is just yeah. how extraordinarily cultured yes. the man he was and how um, yeah. voracious a, a reader. And you talked about him as a collector of sort of ideas and writers and his own incredible writing practice. So, you know, there's a lot more in the book. I I just, I think in a way wanted to uh, raise the, we had, a, we had a little chat quite a while ago where you said, oh, I think you should ask me that in the, in the podcast. And the question was, have you oh. been too soft about Bante's sex life in the book? Oh. <laughs> So I wanted, in a way, for some people who would be interested in reading the book and who would want to know how you've dealt with that area, I thought it was important to go into. But, you yeah, know, yeah, as you yeah, say, yeah. it's it's a part of his life and it's a part of the Dharma we've inherited and it's a part of the movement that you and I happen to live in and other people might find interesting um, yeah. to join or sociologically or something else. I mean, but it, it's interesting because at least in the wider Buddhist world, and somebody who gets involved with Buddhism will read around and they will find websites where he's, you know, he's traduced and, uh, or speak to people who, you know, will immediately say he wasn't a real Buddhist or a real monk or, or whatever. So it, it's important from that point of view because it has affected his um, profile, mm. but it also is, is far more important as a, as, a, as an aspect of the course he steered in life, mm. which isn't to glorify it. I mean, yes, it was. It, it took you know it took daring to kind of live the kind of life he did and to teach in the way he did to start a new movement, and part of that daring included, you know, saying, "Well, okay, so you know, is is sex." something you know where does that come into the picture for me for others and so it wasn't it, just sex is it it's sort of in his in his thinking about all of that it was about relationships it was about gender it was about the family it was about yes. parenting and all of these things that, yes. which obviously we we've, we've been chewing over for decades since for decades. and always know. not always successfully yeah and not, <laughs> not always with, with with you know the help we might have wanted mm. from him I mean, mm. he was you know good heavens you know he was feeling his way into something so different mm. you know, so new this idea of an order that's neither monastic nor lay mm. uh, it's easy to not be monastic you know, and I think this is the question that you know the future generations are going to face with much more urgency, um, because we we lived an experiment for 20, 30 years of what we called our new society, mm. where the normative lifestyle, you know, of of most order members was something really quite almost you know very very together, working together, living together. Mm. You know, our social life very much contained with, with it within the movement, and this is changing. You know, mm. for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, so, how that model of an order that's neither monastic nor lay will will thrive when people are far less connected, or maybe they'll find ways of connecting. You know, there's no reason, there's no logic that says that Buddhists can only start businesses together by packing beans in a whole food shop. You know, so, you know they a bunch of Buddhists could you know, get together and create a multi-billion-pound. Um, empire of some sort you know who knows yeah but that was that that's for that's for future generations yeah maybe i've got one more question for you which is um obviously you 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 lived your life in his orbit Mm. um 
And then you've gone back and you've written <laughs> about that life and those times. I wonder how um, writing the biography has changed your relationship with Sangha Rakshita. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, was, somebody asked me that question a while ago, and um, I wasn't very good at answering it. Um, I'm still not, perhaps. I mean, it, it's, it is about, you know, I'm, I'm a character in it, you know, as are other people, but Sang, I've, I've tried, you know, it's, it's very much a book about Sangharachita. It's not a book about Tri Ratna. It's a book. Um, so I'm in there, but, you know, it's, it's not a full, full-blooded account of my relationship of, of, of Sangharachita. I think, I think I've come to appreciate him and the scale you know, as as I kind of necessarily tried to distance myself from from things, and that wasn't easy because I started writing it, what two you know a year a year and a half ago, not long after he died. Um, but I think you know with distance, I I at least have you know felt able to get this sense of the scale of the project he set himself. Um, you know, and 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 this and yeah, the 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 scope of his, the scope of his talent, and and insight. You know, and and I mean, we've we've not really talked about, yeah, you know, so so much of so much of his life. You know, was so much of the life that uh, created the template for our order was the work he was doing inside on his relationship with the total Buddhist tradition. Mm. trying to make some kind of sense of the total Buddhist tradition so that he could live it as he intuited as an organic whole and communicate it as an organic living whole, um, that all the traditions and all the teachers are essentially talking about the same thing and inspiring one on the same journey that that he saw that in himself and tried to communicate that, knowing that the West was ready. It wasn't, if we weren't careful, it would just get lost in a whole series of disparate orthodoxies based on traditions set up long ago in the East. But supposing you ask, you know, what does it really mean to be a Buddhist? What What is, what is the tradition? You know, is it a bunch of disconnected cultural bits and pieces, or is it, you know, is it really saying something around which all the other things can be seen to constellate and therefore be drawn from mm. uh, for for the for nourishment and inspiration for you know without these sort of um, demarcations and no go areas? I mean, that's an astonishing project to have pulled off intellectually and spiritually. Um, you know that that I mean, it would be enough if that's all he'd done and written a few books like the survey and eternal legacy and forty three years ago. You know, and he did carry on writing, of course. But uh, in a way, even if if that's all he'd done, you know, and, and just sort of found someone rich to give him a home to do it, could have influenced the, the you know, might have had more influence on on things than if he did what he did, which was to live it, warts and all among a rather unlikely bunch of young people, you know, from straight out of the 60s. But then what a perfect timing as well, you could say, 
So I've come, I think I've really come to, you know, I, with distance, I'm, I'm so it's falling, it's taking a shape. And I suppose that's the shape I've, I hope I've communicated, mm. you know, in hope and hopefully not too kind of willful away. Um, and I think in the process of writing and actually even since writing, I mean, if I was to go back, um, I, I imagine there'd be, you know, kind of emphases that I might, you know, play around with and, and add as, you know, even with having now finished it and thought about it more for a few months, you know, I thought, my goodness, I don't know that I knew this or really, really understood quite what I'd got myself caught up in. You know, what an astonishing uh, adventure mm. you know, that he set us, set us up, set us, set us off on. Mm. Oh, thank you, Nagabodi. Thank you for saying yes. And thank you for writing the book with so much um, sort of skill and empathy and clarity and, uh, and and also just this lovely feel for the language. I think if you do end up reading the book, you'll see what I mean by that. It's a, it's a very engaging and beautifully written book. And um, I suppose thank you just also for your... Uh, capacity to hold all of these dimensions of the man and the project um, and and try and express how they fit together to some degree while not assuming that you've done the whole of that job. I think that's there's a there's a real there's a real art to leaving people with enough information and enough perspectives and enough insight into a situation and and the person and his life. Um, to be able to draw our own conclusions and to sort of live with it as a, as a living text rather than some kind of hagiography or apologetics or or something like that. You know, it really does feel like Sangharakshita is very alive in the book and at the end of it, you still don't completely know him. And I think that's a real success of a book like this. Mm, yeah, so thanks. I just wanted to say thank you, really. Mm, thank you. And the, yeah, lovely to talk about it, to be reminded of it. <laughs> It's a while now. It's a two or three or four, whatever months since I finished mm. it. So nice mm. to be to have this chance to visit that territory. Mm. So um, we're doing this recording right at the end of December, and you're off on a long retreat, which will be fantastic. A bit of a solitary time, a much-deserved break, and then I wish you all the best um, from February when the book is released, and uh, you'll have a whole round of uh, book launches and talking to people about it, and and having a, just a much wider readership, and uh, we'll all engage in in what you've written. So I really look forward to that process, and I hope you have a great rest between now and then <laughs> thanks so much and thanks mm. for thanks for the conversation mm. thanks nagabodi Wintour's publications is part of the tree ratna buddhist community and this podcast is sponsored by future dharma fund a buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund dharma projects across the world including ours if you're enjoying the podcast please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours you can find out more about Wintour's publications by going to our website.